We are continuing our journey through the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that 500 years ago Martin Luther nailed the 95 disputations or theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg in Germany. And as we've been walking through this series, we've been talking about some of these catchphrases that were important to the reformers at the time, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. And for them, these were not just kind of independent phrases, but they actually held together in a kind of cohesive understanding of God and the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. This was a radical recalibration and understanding of the role of the gospel in our lives. And as we've been going through this series, we've been tracing the life of Martin Luther. We've seen everything from remarkable pilgrimages to incredible castle moments where he is stolen away. And today we're going to go back to the period of time between 1517, when the nailing of the 95 Theses took place, to 1517, to 1520. This was a period of time where Martin Luther was doing a, a great deal of writing. And you'll never understand Luther if you don't understand this person right here. This is Pope Leo X. Don't you love the facial expressions of paintings from long ago? Pope Leo X was an incredible patron of the arts, an incredible visionary, but he also considered himself not just to be the head of a church, but to really be a king. And so in this period of time when Martin Luther was doing all of this preaching and this writing and there was discussion and debating all the way about a thousand miles away in Rome, they were examining what Martin Luther was saying and the church was displeased. And so the Pope sent a declaration, or what they called a papal bull, basically a glorified cease and desist letter. And in that letter, it called Martin Luther a slithering serpent and a wild boar in the Lord's vineyard. So you could start selling t-shirts in Wittenberg for this kind of thing. There's a wild boar loose in the vineyard. In fact, this language was so provocative that they were saying that 41 of the 95 theses had to be recanted, that, that Luther thought it was fake news at first. He didn't believe that this actually came from the Pope, that the church that he loved so dearly that he had served his whole life, that he never wanted to leave. Luther never wanted to break away from the church. He wanted to reform it. He wanted to change it. But when the Pope sent this decree or this papal bull towards Luther, it did a couple of things. One, it immediately called for all people to burn all of Luther's books and writings. But it wasn't just the writings that were at stake here. These were not just a battle of ideas. Luther himself was being called out and told to go to Rome and that if he wouldn't recant, he would be burned as a heretic he would be condemned, and he would punish forever in hell. There was no salvation outside the institution of the church, what they taught back then. And so on December 10th of the year 1520, they decided to respond to the papal declaration. And Luther had his good friend, Philip Melanchthon, 
post these words, amongst some others, to the door of the same church where he had posted the 95 Theses. So basically, Luther tweeted this out. He tweeted out that a pious and religious spectacle was going to take place in which now the Antichrist must be revealed. We don't condone the language and the combativeness that Luther uses here, and you just need to know in advance, it's going to get worse. And so later that day, in what is today a nice little park on the outside of the, the town of Wittenberg, this is where a congregation of maybe just a couple of hundred people gathered. And today, because it looks like a park, you might be deceived that they went to a nice place, but in reality, the place where they had gone to do this now famous act was a place where they would take the animals to be slaughtered. It was a place where they went and they took the clothes to be burned of those people who had died during the plagues. And it was in this place that Martin Luther took the papal declaration, a copy of what he had been sent and how he must stand down. And Luther quoted Psalm 21.10 and said, because you have confounded the truth of God today, you, the Lord confounds you into the fire with you. And he lights it and he throws it into the fire. And a monk from a small town in Germany took on the most powerful person in the world. Things escalated from there, not only in the words and the rhetoric, but also in terms of the images and the propaganda. They used art as a form of that. Here is some art of Luther going into hell. So this is some of the anti-Protestant imagery. There's also the anti-Catholic imagery here. Here is Luther preaching in the middle. On the one side, you have the Protestants and those people who understand the gospel. You have confused people in the middle. And on the right-hand side, you have the Catholic leadership that's being swallowed up. Things escalated. Disunity was in the air. But what you need to understand when we have this declaration of what we're about to say to there. It was ultimately a question of authority. Who was in charge? And according to the reformers, it was Christ and Christ alone. Today we use this phrase, Christ alone, and we might refer to it as Christ alone as opposed to other religions or other philosophies or worldviews. What they were talking about, interestingly enough, during the time of the Reformation, was that they were saying it's Christ alone and not the institution of the church that holds the keys to salvation. And so what happened for Luther is that a second declaration made its way to Luther. The second papal declaration condemned not only Luther, but also anybody who aided and abetted him. And so now the Pope was declaring that anybody in a town, in a region, could no longer now receive the sacraments, that they were withhold, the church was withholding the possibility and the means of salvation because of him. Well, this notion, this explosive idea of Christ alone was like setting not only a fire of different books and decrees, it was setting the fire of revolution in the church that would forever be changed. And because, because we believe that Christ alone is head of the church and it's Christ alone that gets our allegiance when Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, 
that this notion became of the priesthood of all believers. There was this notion that we're all equal before God, that there's the democratization of the gospel that happens here, a decentralization that we all belong to God, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And because of this, the church was forever to be changed as well as society. And so Luther wrote this, it is pure invention that Pope, bishop, priests, and monks are called to a spiritual estate, meaning like that they have a holy vocation, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called to the temporal estate or like an ordinary vocation. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference between them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests through baptism. Through the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, each and every one of us has a sacred and high and holy calling. I'll never forget the time that I was ordained. I was on the steps of my home church, and while I was there being ordained, there was, I mean, all of the time, all of the study, all of the preparation, all the years, I was so excited for this moment. And then my childhood pastor looked at me after the prayer of ordination and declaration, and he said, Rich, I give you a charge. Remember, the authority by which you do what you do in ministry is not given to you in your ordination, but in your baptism. In other words, I don't have any more spiritual authority than you do. Because Christ alone is the head of the church. Luther's favorite passage about the church was 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Notice those adjectives, chosen royal, holy, special. The word special there in the Greek is poema. It's your God's poem, your God's masterpiece. And he's not describing the leadership of the church. He's describing you, the church. Not because of anything that you have done, but because he has brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Ken Follett writes a great deal of historical fiction, and in one of his books called Fall of Giants, he tells the story of a young boy by the name of Billy Williams, or as they used to call him, Billy Twice. And he was a young boy who was going into the mines for the first time. It was just before World War I, and the mining industry was at its apex. And because it was his first day, his dad had been a miner, it was his first day, there was going to be a little bit of hazing or teasing. And here's how Follett describes the story. Settle in. This might take a little while, but it's story time in church. Billy had no watch. It was difficult to know how much time had passed. He began to work more slowly to conserve his strength in the mines. But then his light went out. He had never known darkness like this. He saw nothing, not even patches of gray, not even different shades of black. 
He lifted his shovel to face level and held it an inch from his nose, but he couldn't see it. This is what it must be like to be blind, he thought. He stood perfectly still. What was he to do? He was supposed to take the lamp to the lighting station, but he could not have found his way back through the tunnels, even if he'd been able to see. In the blackness, he might blunder about for hours. He would just have to wait. He got back to work. He felt sure that many hours must have passed. He started to get scared, and this time he could not shake it off. It was the darkness that unnerved him. He could have borne the waiting if he'd been able to see. In the complete blackness, he felt like he was losing his mind. He had no sense of direction, and every time he walked back from the dram, he wondered if he was about to crash into the tunnel side. Earlier, he had worried about crying like a child. Now he had to stop himself screaming. And then he recalled what his ma'am had said to him, Billy, Jesus is always with you, even down in the pit. At the time, he thought she was just telling him to behave well, but she had been wiser than that. Of course, Jesus was with him. Jesus was everywhere. The darkness did not matter, nor the passage of time. Billy had someone taking care of him. And to remind him of that, he sang a hymn. He disliked his voice, which was still a treble, but there was no one near to hear him, and so he sang as loud as he could. And when he had sung all the verses, the scary feeling began to return, and he imagined Jesus standing just on the other side of the dram, watching with a look of grave compassion on his bearded face. And Billy sang another hymn. He shoveled and paced to the time of the music, and most of the hymns went with a swing, and every now and then he suffered again the fear that he might have forgotten. The shift might have ended, that he'd be down there all alone, And then he would just remember the robed figure standing with him in the dark, and he knew plenty of hymns. He'd be going to Bethesda Chapel three times every Sunday since he was old enough to sit quietly. Hymn books were expensive, and not all the congregation could read, and so everyone learned the words. And when he had sung 12 hymns, he reckoned an hour had passed. Surely it must be the end of the shift. But then he sang another 12, and after that, it was hard to keep track. He sang his favorites twice. He worked slower and slower, and he was singing up from the grave. He arose at the top of his voice when he saw a light. The work that had become so automatic, he didn't stop, but he picked up another shovelful, carried it to the dram, still singing while the light grew stronger. And when the hymn came to an end, he leaned on his shovel. The prankster stood watching him, lamp at his belt with a strange look on his shadowed face. Billy would not let himself show relief. He was not going to show Price how he felt. He put on his shirt and his trousers, and then he took the unlit lamp from the nail, and he hung it on his belt. Price said, what happened to your lamp? You know what happened, Billy said, his voice sounding strangely grown up. Price turned away and walked back along the tunnel. Billy hesitated. He looked the opposite way, and just on the other side of the dram, he glimpsed that bearded face in a pale robe but the figure disappeared like a thought. Thank you, Billy said. As he followed Price, his legs ached so badly that he felt that he might fall down, but he hardly cared if he did. He could see again. The shift was over. Soon he would be home and he could lie down. They reached the pit bottom and got him to the cage in a crowd of black-faced miners. And as they waited for the signal from above, Billy noticed that they were all looking at him with sly grins. 
Hewitt said, how did you get on today? Your first day, Billy, twice. Fine, thank you, Billy said. Hewitt's expression was malicious. He said, no problems? Billy hesitated. Obviously, they knew something. He wanted them to know that he had not succumbed to the fear. My lamp went out, he said, and he just about managed to keep his voice steady. He looked at Price but decided it would be more manly not to accuse him. It was a bit difficult shoveling in the dark all day, he finished. That was too understated. They might think his ordeal had been nothing much, but it was better than admitting to the fear. An older man spoke. All day, he said. And Billy said, aye. The older miner looked at Price and said, you jerk, it's only supposed to be for an hour. Billy's suspicion was confirmed. They all knew what had happened, and it sounded as if they did something similar to all the new boys, but Price had made it worse than usual. Weren't you scared, Billy boy, on your own in the dark, one of the masked? He thought carefully about his answer. They were all looking at him, waiting to hear what he would say. Their sly smiles had gone, and they now seemed a bit ashamed. And he decided to tell them the truth. I was scared, yes, but I wasn't on my own. Not on your own? Of course not, Billy said. Jesus was with me. Hewitt laughed loudly, but no one else did. His guffaw resounding in the silence and stopped suddenly. The hush lasted for several seconds. Then there was the clang of metal, a jerk, and the cage lifted, and Hewitt turned away. And after that, they didn't call him Billy twice anymore. They always called him Billy with Jesus. Billy with Jesus. What's the only thing that can meet you in the complete darkness? Only Jesus. What's the only thing that can rise above the rancor and the rhetoric of our day? Only Jesus. What is it that can meet us in the confusion and the bewilderment of the maze? Only Jesus. What's the only thing that can take you from the darkness and out into the glorious light? Only Jesus. What's the only thing that can take scared children and turn them into strong adults? Only Jesus. It is Christ and Christ alone who has the power to save. It is Christ and Christ alone who will meet us in the pits of darkness and to take us and to become royal, special, treasured, holy, and chosen people. God is with you. God is with you even if you don't recognize it. You don't have to go through an intermediary. The church doesn't hold the keys to this salvation.
It is Christ and Christ alone. The Reformation is a moment in time that changed forever history. It changed the way that we relate to one another. It changed the way that we relate to leadership. It changed the way that we worship at a church. Did you know that Martin Luther was not just a theologian? He was also one of our first hymn writers. He was the one who introduced congregational singing to the people. And so, dear priesthood of all believers, God's chosen treasured possession, rise to your feet and let us sing to Christ and to Christ alone.